This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. If you've been following along, you might know the virus can sometimes lead to blood clots. Now there's new research that shows more cardiovascular problems. The virus could hurt the heart and may even lead to cardiac arrest. And just where we need more problems. I know, right? It's never good news. No. There's nothing good about this virus. <laughs> nothing. Pandemics, man, the worst. Yeah. You know all that extra cleaning, by the way, that you've probably been doing right now to try to avoid the virus? Well, you may be able to stop it if you want, and we will explain that. No question the workplace has changed since the pandemic began. We'll look at the changes that might be made permanent. The movie industry, remember that? <laughs> it's been upended by the pandemic. But will a new unprecedented deal by two industry giants help save it? Baseball back, not for all the professional players, though. Minor leagues have been canceled, which could have a bigger impact than what most fans think it would. Let's uh, get back to the virus's impact on the heart. Dr. Kirk Garrett is an interventionalist cardiologist. So, doctor, does this cause inflammation in the heart? Well, I think it's important to remember first that this is a new organism and, and we're still learning a lot about it. Uh, but we know now that there are at least three direct means whereby this, this virus can cause heart injury. Um, the first is simply by inducing this profound biological stress that goes along with having a severe illness with a, with a dense pneumonia, low oxygen levels, and uh, that can put a, an enormous strain on your heart as well as other body parts. And, and just that strain alone is enough to cause heart injury. Uh, in addition, though, there's this blood clotting problem. Uh, we, we're just starting to learn about how this germ triggers special types of blood clotting in both the veins and the arteries. When that blood clotting is triggered inside heart arteries, a heart attack can ensue and, and it, the heart can be damaged in that way. And then the virus can also attack the heart more directly. Uh, the, the virus can get right into the heart muscle cells themselves and uh, have toxic effects, uh, causing direct injury to the heart muscle. Now, a lot of viruses are known to behave this way, and our body has means of fighting off those viruses that behave in this manner. But we're finding out that with this particular virus, the, the usual defense mechanisms that keep most people safe uh, don't always work and can have lasting impact. So not surprising that this is happening, but our bodies are probably so overwhelmed when it is happening that you can't fight it off. And we're learning more as, as more people, uh, I guess, succumb to this. And you can do MRIs or you can do blood tests or you can do biopsies or I guess you can do autopsies and, and see some of this in people who have died and they've died from, from cardiac arrest and, and not, you know, a, a lung issue or, or the virus getting you in some other way. Yes, and um, some of these mechanisms that I've touched on already um, seem to act in, in a special way with this particular virus. For example, the blood clotting problem um, is, is really a little different with this virus than most others. Uh, we're finding that blood clots can form in unusual ways and to some degree in unusual places. Uh, it may be that small blood vessels in the heart uh, and the heart muscle are being affected by blood clots and causing low-grade injury that, that may not be as apparent during the acute part of the illness as you might expect. 
uh, and yet injury has taken place. And, and that sort of mechanism would explain why someone could recover from an illness, feel pretty well, and then suddenly have a very serious heart problem. Are you, excuse me, are you also seeing this in uh, what would otherwise be asymptomatic patients? Uh, and I guess what I'm getting at is, could we be in a situation where somebody who, for all intents and purposes, didn't know they had COVID, and then they get a heart attack, uh, and then you find out after the fact that part of that was caused by a COVID infection? That's possible. We don't really have enough information about that yet to be sure about it. Of course, the, the real challenge there is it's awfully hard to study asymptomatic people. We, we can't identify them very easily. But we do know that uh, with this disease being in the community, that the risk is there. We do know some people can have the disease and can have physiologic um, impact from the disease without feeling that bad from it. So we have to anticipate that at least some people will be at risk. It kind of would go along with some of the other studies we're seeing of, of people who are asymptomatic and they get their lungs scanned and they've actually lost some lung capacity, but they, they didn't realize it. They haven't felt it, but you can see it. Something's going on even if you don't realize that something's going on. That's exactly right. And then, of course, on the other end of the spectrum, we have people who get very sick, truly deathly ill. And we think that um, much of the trouble in that setting is caused by this so-called cytokine storm, which is really a fancy way of saying your uh, mechanisms for controlling your immune response to this invading germ have, have uh, gone off the rails. And your body is just uh, burning up, literally burning up with uh, inflammation. Uh, and, and that cytokine storm can be lethal. And if you survive it, there's now evolving information that the injury that this cytokine storm can create in the blood vessels may lead to trouble many years down the road. Now, of course, we don't know this is going to be the case. We haven't had an opportunity to follow people long enough yet. But there is a concern that the kind of injury that is caused in these blood vessels during, um, during the illness may very well set people up for late problems. And if that's true, it means we have to have a care plan for managing people um, uh, coming uh, going forward. Hmm. Dr. Kirk Garrett, he's a heart doctor. You might be doing more cleaning than ever before now to try to stop from getting the virus on a door handle or countertop. You probably have seen store workers clean shopping carts after every use. Well, is this hygiene theater, as some are calling it? And it might be pointless. Derek Thompson is a writer at The Atlantic. He wrote a column called Hygiene Theater is a Huge Waste of Time. So, Derek, we're doing all this cleaning, but this spreads mostly through the air, right? The droplets or the aerosols. So don't we do this just to make ourselves feel better? <laughs> yeah, it does make us feel better. And that is why we're doing it. And I do think it's important probably to uh, distinguish between sort of individual hygiene and what I call hygiene theater. Uh, I think you said that beautifully. Uh, Based on the science, uh, this disease spreads through what are called large droplets, uh, which are not actually that large. It means the droplets that come from, like, sneezing and coughing, or aerosolized droplets, like the spray that comes from a conversation, and those droplets tend to linger into the air and get into our nose and mouth. Um, this disease does not seem to spread nearly as often from surfaces, which are sometimes called fomites. Um, now, if someone wants to wash their hands a lot in the middle of a plague, I'm definitely not going to tell them, don't wash your hands in the middle of a plague. Like, by all means, 
wash your hands. It's a plague. At the same time, I think you need to have some sense of priority when you're determining how you're going to go about your life and what you're going to focus on. Um, people can only remember so many things at once. And so if they are going to remember three things, I'd prefer that they remember masks, distancing, and move activities outside as much as possible, rather than focus so much on surfaces. So that's individuals. When you, when you get to companies, institutions, I do think that sometimes they're wasting scarce resources on these on like antiseptic weaponry that is sometimes doing absolutely nothing to keep us safe, and is sometimes actually putting us in danger, because if you're a you know, restaurant or a gym and you're saying, hey, everyone, come on inside, it's okay because I scrubbed the table, well, you've done nothing to prevent an airborne virus from uh, well, spreading between people. Well, All Derek, you've done is soap down a table. So, so yeah. I'm, I'm interesting you should mention that. So here in the studio, I'm just kind of looking at our arsenal. Sitting next to me, I've got a small bottle of Germex, a large canister of Purell wipes, and another canister of, uh, what is this, Clorox hydrogen peroxide wipes. And Mike, you've got what? I only have the green bottle. I don't have the blue. What, You've the, got more than me. What's in the green bottle? The same as you. It's same, the, oh, it's the other thing. Yeah. Are we overprepared? <laughs> are you overprepared? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the answer is probably yes. You are probably overprepared. I think being overprepared during a pandemic is not the worst thing in the world. Um, I, I hold a, a, a different level of... Uh, uh, of what should I say? Disrespect for you know individual overpreparedness and institutional overpreparedness. So, for example, again, if someone wants to wipe down their counters with seven Lysols a day, I think that's frankly a waste of time in all likelihood. Um, but if it doesn't take away from more important activities like you know looking after their children or feeding the dog, I don't have a huge problem with it. What I have a problem with, and what I call hygiene theater, are these institutions and these companies that tell patrons it's okay to engage in this unsafe activity because we have Purell, because we have Lysols. No, that hand sanitizer and those Lysol wipes are going to do nothing to prevent people from sneezing into each other. So I think it's just really important that when we think about these institutions and these restaurants and how to keep them safe, or really sometimes just not to open them at all, that we focus on how this disease actually Spread. You point and out the large and small droplets, not mostly through surfaces. You point out the subway system in New York, right? Shutting down so they can go and decontaminate all the cars. Good to clean, but you were saying in the article that maybe instead of having hand sanitizer and wipes and everything, that you should be having mask dispensers. Put the money towards that because there's only so much money for a system. So mask everybody up when they're riding, and that's a much safer way to do things. Yeah, I mean, you look at a place like Japan, which you know might be the only city in the world more famous for its extremely busy subway than New York City, uh, they have found, based on their contact tracing uh, investigations, that there have been basically no outbreaks on their subways. How could that possibly be? Well, it's because you have close to 100% mask wearing uh, in Tokyo, and as a result, you have a lot of people that aren't talking on the train, they're wearing their masks, they're not sneezing into each other's faces, they're not coughing into each other's faces, they're not licking the subway poles, and as a result, lo and behold, they're not contracting COVID-19. Um, it's very likely that if people in New York do the exact same thing, wear masks, don't talk, don't sneeze, don't cough into people's faces, that you don't need to take the subway offline for four or five hours a night, deprive thousands of people of public transit just because you want to, you know, 
spray some, I don't even, what, what do they even call it, antimicrobial uh, blasts uh, at the poles and the, and the <laughs> chairs and the walls. And this is just a total waste of $100 million at a time when the subway is running a deficit. So that is hygiene theater. That is a terrible allocation of resources and a terrible way to communicate to the public the priorities of this pandemic. Derek, what do you do at home? I, I wash my hands frequently, and that's about it. We don't wash our um, our groceries. We don't, you know, uh, walk around with gloves. Uh, we, yeah, we we. I don't think we even have any Lysol left. Uh, we wash our hands relatively frequently. Um, we, when we're out in public, we don't immediately stick our fingers in our mouth. Um, and uh, <laughs> you don't lick anything, like the light pole, and, or and, yeah. and we and we don't right, and we and we don't go into uh, restaurants. We don't we don't spend any time in uh, in indoor spaces, especially those that are unventilated. Um, whenever, even if, if we have dinner with close friends that are in our like isolation bubble or isolation unit, I guess as they're calling it, we have dinner um, outside with them. So um, it's it's it goes back to the, what I said at the beginning: masks, distancing. And all the activities that you know and love to do um, inside, do it outside as much as possible. But when you're in the store and you see a Purell bottle, do you still think maybe I should get one just in case? You know. You know, I I, I don't. I've never really. I've never really. This is. We're getting into my personal preferences here, but I've never really liked the smell of Purell at all. Uh, so I, I would much prefer to use ordinary soap and just do a a nice warm hand clean than a. Um, then, then spray, you know, you know alcohol in your hand. <laughs> this, this program brought to you by Purell. No. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. We have it everywhere. Yeah. Oh. All right. Derek Thompson from The Atlantic. Derek, thanks so much. Businesses have been forced to change because of the pandemic. You might be listening to us working from home, or if you're still going into the office, maybe you have noticed changes like more cleaning or more separation from coworkers. So what changes are going to be permanent once all this ends? Joe Lerner is director of the Midwest region for Savills, a global real estate provider. He talks to WBBM's Jennifer Kuyper about what offices are going to look like in the future. They will be on because they serve an important uh, role to an organization. First of all, they're a cultural hub. And without the office serving as that hub, you do begin to... um, become just one of the fray. You're just like any other employer. It also is important for peer relationships, which keep people um, attached to their, to their, to their company, as well as mentorship and training and innovation and collaboration and recruitment and career advancement. So there's still a role for the office within an organization, but it will change due to this work at home experiment that, uh, has been going better than obviously most companies expected. So when some do head back to the office, some have already, but there will be more, uh, who knows when, uh, what will the layouts look like in offices? Well, if, you know, the, the first and foremost thing will be less dense. Over the last 10 and 20 years, uh, companies have put more people into the same amount of space, and there's going to be a relaxing of that density, clearly. Uh, there's going to be more meetings-related space, perhaps a little bit less heads down related space because heads down work can be done at the home or elsewhere outside of the office environment. Uh, Clearly less clutter, less paper, less personal effects, uh, a greater focus on health and wellness related things and sanitation stations and a greater cleaning regimen, certain procedures where you traverse through the office differently than you might have otherwise. Uh, perhaps less fresh food and more vending and things of that nature, bag lunches. Uh, so there, there will be changes, but a lot of the function will remain the same, which is getting people together, working, collaborating, innovating. And uh, that, that role will, will remain the same. And, and the, the, the layout will reflect 
you know, ways in which that could be maximized. Do you find that landlords are really helping with this or is this really the company that's taking the lead on it? It's really both. It's, it's, it's a really strong partnership because everybody really is in this together. Um, you know, it, it, if, if it's just the company and not the landlord, it doesn't work. If it's just the landlord and not the company, it doesn't work because it's a whole system. And landlords are doing a great job. I mean, they've really, you know, changed their cleaning regimen. They've instituted technology within their offices, uh, the buildings to allow for greater fresh air intake and uh, temperature scanning and touchless systems and things of that nature to make that uh, entry point from the street onto, you know, to all the way up to the, the physical office um, much more seamless, much more safe and, and you know, in theory, quicker. AMC Theaters and Universal have cut a deal that will allow the studio's movies to be made available on video on demand after just 17 days of play in theaters. The Hollywood Reporter writes that it shatters the traditional theatrical window that required studios to play their movies on the big screen for nearly three months before they can be made available at home. AMC will share in revenue as it tries to recover from its theaters being closed. Uh, Elsa Ramo is an entertainment attorney whose clients include New Line Cinema, Imagine Entertainment, the Jim Henson Company, and many more. Elsa, before the movies can even make it to the theaters, they still have to be made, so we're still having trouble getting shoots off the ground. No, absolutely. I mean, the reality is is that we are shooting. Um, the smaller and more contained, the more realistic that's occurring, uh, but... Studios and producers have really ramped up production protocols. Uh, but just like in the sports world, what happens when somebody tests positive in that environment is sort of causing everything to break down and come together again. So it's a struggle, but it's a struggle we're working through. Is the main issue insurance? It, insurance is still an issue in the sense that you don't have virus coverage. So right now it's just a function of who's going to bear the liability, who's going to hold the bag. And, and thus far, networks and studios have taken on some of the risk. And in independent productions, some financier is willing to bear that risk of production. But these are uh, the insurance is not covering the virus right now. For films or TV shows that are shooting, how are they doing it? We saw Tyler Perry talking camp quarantine. He says, I got everybody together. We were testing them every day and we got this done as quick as possible. Yeah, it's lots of testing. Uh, it's funny, a lot of production companies are buying their own uh, tests to, to, to administer on set. So the, the rapid testing that we hear about, and it's really kind of having people work in pods. So you know, the makeup artists have everything single serving and are, are much smaller, it's much more contained, and it's kind of really whittling down the contact points to really just cameras rolling and everything else is done virtually. Um, but the logistical, the logistics around it are a nightmare. It's, it's a lot of how do we get, you know, a, a shot in, which would normally accrue 50 down to 10 without people touching each other, masks off in front of camera only. I would imagine that it's a little bit easier to shoot a TV show, because at least you know the, the TV venues are there, but shooting a feature film, uh, how do you do that when you don't know when theaters are going to actually be open, whether or not ones in Europe, for example, will be open way before the U.S.? How do you figure out your kind of supply chain if you don't know where it's going? I, you know, I think things that are in production now are largely being driven and financed or at least supported by SVOD platforms, and there's still significant production monies in the feature world being spent for shows on Amazon and Netflix and 
um, other SVOD, even HBO Max and Disney Plus. So the idea of it being in contention in a theater is sort of a hope, but a, but not a necessity. Um, for a lot of things that are in production now. We were mentioning the deal to move films through the theaters quicker when they are open, faster, and then get them to TVs so you can watch them at home. For people who, I guess, were the big holdouts, and there were probably still some saying, I'm never going to buy a movie on my TV. Come on, i got to go in. Does this change that for them? Because eventually you're going to want to stay home and just watch one of these new movies because you're tired of the old stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two consumer behaviors that have have been effectuated by virtue of the pandemic. One is because we've been stuck in home for so long, the idea of watching something in, instead of at the theaters has become a behavior we've all become accustomed to. But I think more importantly and significantly, right, with, with recent shortened of windows, because the studios and networks understand is the ability to pay more because something is new, right? That premium in your home instead of going to the theater, that consumer behavior is also on the uptick. And I think that is challenging the return of, of theatrical viewing in the way that we once knew it pre-pandemic. Elsa Ramo, entertainment attorney, founder of Ramo Law. Clients include New Line, Imagine Entertainment, uh, Jim Henson Company, and many more. Elsa, thanks so much. The coronavirus has made its mark on baseball in more ways than just this new Major League Baseball season. One of the most damaging effects is the cancellation of the minor leagues, which is where young prospects develop and get ready for the big leagues. Gene Shaw, former major leaguer who's now a recruiting specialist at Next College Student Athlete, he talked to KYW's Matt Leon about what this means for the major league hopefuls and for fans. Like everything that has gone on in the past year, I think things are going to change. I don't know if anyone really knows what the landscape of those changes are going to be. I mean, even with the, a lot of players not being able to play this year, that's going to affect teams in different ways. I mean, maybe in two or three years, players that you expected to be ready to help your big league club aren't going to be at that point. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause that ripple effect, not just from the major league level, but through minor league systems, um, through what players that you would have profiled at previous times in the draft that will probably end up going to college. The And from there, Probably colleges are going to be more of a feeder system for baseball, not that they weren't in the past, but probably even more so as, as this moves forward. So you worked in scouting for a long time. What is, if you've got a kid who's been in your organization for two years, regardless of where they are, and now you just have an empty year where basically they have to kind of be on their own and they'll work out, but it's not the same how difficult is that to the development of a player? It can be very difficult. I mean, we look at it in the sense of when a player loses a year based on uh, an injury or something that they're not able to really get on that field, that does set their development back, and that's different for each player. Sometimes the older players coming out of college, it won't be as big a setback as it would be for someone younger, maybe coming out of high school or a Latin American player who needs to get on the field and needs the reps and needs the at-bats, needs the innings. Um, So it will affect players at different points. And I think the one thing I don't think is going to benefit any player, unless it was a player that got hurt at the end of last year and he was out for this year, that might be the only player in a minor league system that might benefit because nobody else is playing at the same time. So his, his lost time might be equal to what a player who hasn't been able to get on the field for the last year or so. And you can simulate games. You can simulate, uh, 
you know, situations, but a lot of development is going through that process on an everyday basis and playing that game every night. And that's what kind of develops the the stamina of the players because like in anything else, I don't think anyone really knows how the big league season is going to play out this year in a, in a shortened season of 60 games. It's, it's more of a sprint this year than it's ever been. Whereas in the past, it's always a longer season. It's a marathon, we would always say. And preparing players to do that was always something that you were working towards in your minor league system, getting them ready day in and day out to go through what they're going to experience when they get to the major league level. So not having that ability to do that and letting players adjust, it's going to be anyone's guess as to how some of these players react. And I think, unfortunately, we're going to lose some players because of this, Um, whether they decide to go a different direction or their development's going to be hindered to a point where other players are going to pass them and you know, they're going to have to be decisions made whether or not they stay with the organization or if they go a different direction. Could this hurt, and I don't want to over-dramatize, but between the contraction and now a year with no minor league baseball, the, the development of some young fans is going to take a hit, isn't it? I, I, I do think that will be the case. I remember, and I'll just share this story from David Montgomery's perspective, when he was talking about the minor league affiliates for the Phillies and how trying to identify areas that were almost a satellite of Philadelphia that would reach that next level of fan base for us, that would be able to attach families and fans to players in a minor league system that they continue to follow as they go through their you know, ascent to the major leagues. So it just kind of made our fan base reach out into areas that we might not have had contact with before. And now you start to see Philly fans coming from when I was in AAA with Scranton Wilkesboro, which was about two hours away. And they have Williamsport and Lehigh Valley and Reading and Lakewood. And then we have the Florida ones with uh, Clearwater and, and the Gulf Coast League. But that whole parameter seemed to carry a large contingent of Philly fans in and around the area that would continually follow the team all the way through a minor league players development, as well as following the major league players and you know how the team was doing at that point. Nurses, doctors, and other hospital workers have a much higher risk of coronavirus exposure than the rest of us since they treat coronavirus patients. It makes sense. But it apparently doesn't mean that they are more susceptible to the virus. A study out of Hogue Memorial Hospital in Newport Beach, California, finds only 1% of about 3,000 workers tested had antibodies to the virus, even though the hospital has treated hundreds of virus patients. The principal investigator of the study says personal protection equipment is a factor, but he also says it's possible their T-cells are better able to fight off the virus because they've been exposed to a wide range of sick people and other coronaviruses over the years. The immune system is a fascinating thing. Yeah, I saw some quote the other day of someone asking, why don't we know more about this already? And the doctor responded, there's so much we don't know about our own immune system. How can you expect me to know more about the virus? Like, we don't even know how this thing works. I don't even know how to use a thermometer. (laughs) (laughs) You make sure it's not too hot. Ah! (laughs) Because if it is, you can't come in. (laughs) Thanks for listening to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. (laughs) 